What do you think the impact is of generative AI overall on businesses? I think the reality is that we have ample supply of great strategic opportunity, overwhelming hype, and inherent limitations that are not necessarily understood. This new intermediary will not only sort of control the search space, but it's going to control interpretation. You know, it's going to suck all this stuff up. Here, let me give you my regurgitation of average response to this. The danger is that it's so articulate in doing that, that for a lot of readers, that will be good enough. In our latest Everything Thought Leadership interview, I talked to Chanka Moy. Chanka had come to CSE Index from Anderson Consulting, which later became Accenture back in 2000. He left CSE Index in the mid-90s to join a startup consulting firm in Chicago called Diamond Technology Partners. Chanka stayed there until 2010, the year in which PwC acquired Diamond for $400 million. Since he joined CSE Index more than 30 years ago, Chanka's career has skyrocketed. He's co-authored five books. More recently, he published a book called A Brief History of a Perfect Future. In my interview with Chanka, we talked about the biggest changes he's seen in the thought leadership profession, in both the research and development of big ideas and how they are brought to market, about generative AI and its overall impact on business, on the impact of generative AI on thought leadership, and lastly, on one of his favorite topics, how organizations can and should use thought leadership to address social issues. It is great to have you on this show. We have known each other for at least 30 years, I think. You joined CC Index back in 91? Sometime around then, yeah. So it's a little more than 30 years that we've known each other. And so the way I look at that is you've been in the world of thought leadership for more than 30 years. And I remember the old index, then CSE Vanguard Research and Advisory Program, which was about the potential uh, business implications of emerging technologies and all the all-star technologists of the time that were in that, in that service. You've co-authored five books, including several bestsellers, and you've been a frequent speaker on technology-fueled innovation. And when, if we take a step back from all that, what do you think are the biggest changes you've seen in how people like you research and develop your ideas, and then the changes in how you present them? Well, thanks, Bob. Um, well, I'll, I'll claim to be in the business of thinking leadership. I'll let other people sort of uh, evaluate that. I think it's been an up and down experience. But yeah, you know, looking back on the last 30 years or so, I think there are two sort of drivers to the kinds of stuff that we, we've done. One, which I talked a lot about in my last book, which we call the laws of zero, but really is sort of like the cost side of Moore's law applied to all of information, information technology, the fact that the cost of doing the kinds of things we do, you know, the capabilities are growing exponentially, but the costs are decreasing. Uh, so the cost of research, the cost of, of publishing, the cost of amplification, the cost of spreading, you know, getting that information out there has dropped precipitously. And I, we can talk more about sort of the positive and negative implications of that. But we really have these powerful tools that amplify what we do. Uh, but of course, they amplify what everybody else does too. The other part of it, which I think is less positive but natural, is you know Gresham's law applies to us as well, right? The the bad forcing out the good, sort of the overwhelming noise that that you know comes into the world, enabled in large part what by what I just talked about the sort of the dropping costs of resources. But I think that thought leadership used to be about actual thought leaders, 
right? Because it was actually so hard to do. And there were natural mechanisms for separating the, the really powerful ideas from, from everything else. And now that's a lot harder. So there's, there's a lot of thinking that isn't really thoughtful contending in the same, in the same space. Would you say the cost of becoming a thought leader has dropped precipitously? I mean, you used to have to have a best-selling book and a firm behind you to afford the development costs of the book. And now you can stand up a book on your own, self-publish. You can create a YouTube channel or a LinkedIn channel and get hundreds of thousands of viewers. The platforms by which we disseminate, disseminate the ideas are free. Yeah, so creation is a lot easier. Publishing is a lot cheaper. You know, um, your ability, as you just said, of just packaging and getting things out there, which in a lot of cases is good, right? But in some cases, there's sort of the natural filters have dropped away. And now we're all inundated, right? We're all inundated with, with information and separating out the, the good from the bad is not easy for the average consumer. And so what does that mean for people who look at you and your career and they say, I want to be Chunkamoy, you know, he's a great career <laughs> leader. No, I'm, I'm serious. And, you know, would you give your younger self today kind of the same advice that you would have hoped somebody gave you 30 years ago about how to become known for having certain expertise and, and how to spread your ideas? Well, I, I think there, there's a lot of paths to the kinds of things we do. I mean, I know you came in from sort of an, a writing and editorial uh, point of view, and I didn't. You know, I just happened to write about the kinds of work that I did. And I would do sort of versions of those kinds of work, and I would try to crystallize my thinking in, in terms of, you know, in ways that could express and help other people learn from it. But, you know, I never really thought of myself as being in the business of thought leadership. I thought thought leadership or writing was a way of creating the artifact around my work. And from that standpoint, I think that really that's the best way to both create ideas and, and the best ways, the best way of sort of approaching this work, right? which is to be good at something and then write about it. Well, you've proved that it works. And so that leads to our next topic about, about generative AI and LLMs. And the ability they have to, you know, help a lot of people say who are not uh, outstanding writers, not even good writers, they're, they're mediocre writers to have to be assisted by ChatGPT or another generative AI tool. What do you think the impact is of generative AI first overall on businesses? Put aside thought leadership for a second, overall impact, and then we'll go into what you think is the impact on thought leadership. Oh, I think I think the effect is going to be astronomical. But I also think it's it's I actually just wrote a piece a few days ago about comparing the lessons from the dot com era, both the boom and the bus and the rebirth to a lot of extent, the current AI boom. And I think the reality is that we have ample supply of great strategic opportunity, overwhelming hype and inherent limitations that are not necessarily understood. And, you know, industry, every individual company needs to understand, separate the opportunity from the hype and understanding the limitations in the context of their own business problems. So it's, it's the kind of broad horizontal set of technologies that don't have one answer for everybody and don't have one sort of calculus for everybody in terms of good, bad, or indifference. You really, really have to dive deeply into what it means for you. So there's within that, of course, is lots of opportunity. 
but one of the things I noted in in my article was that if you look at the the boom and the bust just in those first few years and the kind of companies that are created, and there's a, there's a short list of companies that are worth trillions of dollars today. We also lost about eight trillion dollars from the peak of the boom to, to the bust, right? So it's not all good and it's not all bad. Uh, so the question is, what is it going to be for you? And that that has, of course, have implications for on thought leadership, not just on thought leadership as a profession or an industry, but the its role or you know for its customers, its consumers. Yeah. So there are more dead startups from the '90s than there are thriving startups from the '90s, right? Well, there's always more dead startups and thriving startups <laughs> in any time, right? That's the whole nature of startups. But there's there's value creation and there's value loss. I think what happens in these periods of exuberance is that the opportunities for massive massive value creation go up, along with the risks. Right? That's that's you know that's why we call it beta. It's risk, and higher risk creates higher opportunity for returns. Yeah, and so and I read your article. I thought it was great. And so would you then say there are a lot of people that are going to be jumping into generative AI and they're going to use it to make a lot of money and to make a lot of uh, business process improvements. And there are a whole bunch of folks who are going to use it and wind up squandering billions of dollars. True. Both will be true. And the question is, you know, even the people who have the best understanding of it, there's no guarantee for success. But the people who walk into a volatile deep understanding are going to fail. So you can't guarantee success, but here you can sort of guarantee failure by doing the wrong things. And uh, my friend, David Patrick, who used to be CEO of Schwab, and in one of his books talked about the difference between noble failures and you know, what else you would call the other ones, the, the stupid failures. And the noble failures are the ones where you do everything right. You do all your analysis, you, you, know, you plan well, you execute well, and then the market still decides. The, the kind of failures you want to avoid are the ones that, where you should have spotted the easy weaknesses beforehand. And there's a lot of opportunity right now. And I think the other thing that relates very specifically to, to thought leaders and, and how we project it is, do we give that level analysis of the good, bad, and the ugly about this boom period? Or do we ride on the wave of, you know, essentially um, enthusiasm and booster the opportunities without, you know, really helping people understand the flaws. So it's easy, would you say it's easy to get caught up in the hype? And if you get caught up in the hype, you begin to not look at the downside, the potential downside and where this could be a waste of time and a waste of money. Yeah. You know, and the other thing I think it's important to remember, I know since you're you're really sort of speaking to an audience oftentimes of corporate executives, is that the the risk reward ratio and the investment profile for venture capital is very different than for corporate, you know, in the corporation. I mean, a, a VC will invest in a hundred and hope that two or three will, you know, overwhelm the losses in the others and expect it to be that case. But you don't have the same uh, portfolio kind of approach in a corporate organization. So the thing that bugs me the most in these kinds of times is when somebody says, Look at all the VC money going into this field. Well, you got to remember that those really smart venture capitalists know that 90% of those investments are going to fail. Do you have that opportunity as a corporate innovator? No, you don't. So you got to be you got to be much more judicious and the people who hold out venture capital flows, the rationalization for corporate investments are either fooling us, or trying to fool us or fooling themselves. Yeah, one or two 
failures in a corporation could mean the end of somebody's career, basically. Absolutely. And it, that shouldn't be the case. And that's actually now why I'm, I'm saying this. Yeah. I think that the corporate innovation only gets so many chances. And you still have to expect some failure there. But we're not talking, you know, 98 out of 100 failures. So that, that's why different ballgame. Okay, let's talk about the impact of generative AI on this field of thought leadership. Have you thought about this, how this could impact the way content is, is researched, developed, delivered to the marketplace, the way users, readers, viewers use it? What are your thoughts on, on the impact of this stuff on thought leadership? Oh, I, th I think that it's important in all these cases to first ask the question of how might it change reader or consumer behavior and preferences? I think one of, one of the things we're looking at here is a new intermediary. And I think that LLMs, because of the nature of what they work on and what they do, will have an impact on thought leadership that's greater than what Google News did to the newspaper industry, right? You essentially have a new intermediary that's going to manage or adjudicate who gets attention and who doesn't and change the economics of who, who extracts value from, from that content. Something that Chanka mentioned earlier is something I've overlooked in the past. It's that the barriers to creating thoughtful ideas and getting them into the marketplace have essentially vanished over the years. When I entered the thought leadership profession in 1987, the cost of publishing were high. The printing and mailing costs were sizable. Publishing a management book with a traditional book publishing house was difficult. You had to be somewhat famous for your idea, or your company had to guarantee the publishing company that it wouldn't lose money on the book. And getting publicity required hiring a big PR firm. All this, of course, is no longer the case. Many thought leaders control their marketing, and some have built up hundreds of thousands or even millions of followers. But here you're going to have an even more sort of potentially harming effect that this new intermediary will not only sort of control the search space, but it's going to control interpretation and it's going to do its own creation. So, it, you know, it's going to suck all this stuff up. And the first instance will be to tell the user, well, here's generally how to think about it. It won't be to say, oh, you know, go read this, that or the other thing or even what this, that, or the other, you know, outlets said about it. It's like, here, let me give you my regurgitation of the average response to this thing. And the danger is that it's so articulate in doing that, that for a lot of readers, that will be good enough. So there's no need to go to, you know, the equivalent of the New York Times or the equivalent of the Washington Post or the equivalent of anything else. It will have its own sort of product for you naturally. That's what it does. So as a, as a content creator, you have this problem of somebody else is going to create content that's almost as good or sometimes better than yours. It's going to do it in, in a way that, you know, there are no punctuation errors and there, there's no grammar flaws. It's going to sound good. Or it might just misinterpret what you said and tell the, uh, you know, tell the reader that, you know, this outlet said this, whereas you didn't. So you have all these problems of somebody else, you know, this is 800 pound gorilla, no matter how big you are. Right. No matter what top tier professional services firm you are or whatever, you're going to have this more massive grill that's sitting between you and your customers. So just trying to imagine this. So instead of saying, well, what on this issue of whatever it is, digital strategy for telecommunication companies, instead of type, I want to see what McKinsey has to say about this. I'm going to go to the McKinsey site. 
I'm going to go to Bain. Instead of doing that with generative AI, we'll type into ChatGPT. What's the best thinking on the, the, the impact of digital technology on telecom, right? Absolutely. Comes the answer. And maybe McKinsey's mentioned, maybe Bain, maybe Accenture, maybe whomever, or maybe not. And it comes up with its own answer. Yeah, it comes up with its own answer. And it could also tell you that, you know, my friends at McKinsey said X, whereas they said the opposite of X, right? Because, you know, everybody else said the opposite of X. So therefore, just guess that McKinsey probabilistically probably said whatever. So I did, I did the thing that I'm sure that a few of the folks in the audience probably did as well. The first few times they used ChatGDP or the equivalent, I asked it about myself. I asked it, what did he write? You know, what, what did that book say? And I was amazed because I found that later my books were in this training set. <laughs> I was amazed at what it got right. But there are times when it wasn't so right. Matter of fact, the, I, I asked it at one point, what's the most read article that Chunka Moy ever wrote? And, it, and it's played back something on the order of, oh, yes, he wrote this article with Mohan Sani at Northwestern University. And it was about X, Y, and Z. Mohan Sani at Northwestern University is a good friend of mine. We've never written a paragraph together. And so we certainly didn't write that article. And of course, what it said told me about the article, what the article wrote, said, or you know, proposed, it just made up. Some people call that hallucination. I call that really, really big mistake. But it was very articulate. And anybody else who asked that question would walk away saying, oh, wow, this guy, he had this really big article. This is what it is. And would have had a completely different view would have walked away with a completely different impression of my view on some critical topics. I think everybody has that risk, that danger. And you think most people will believe what ChatGPT or or its competition tells them, as opposed to saying, I'm not sure Chunka, and I don't remember an article by Mohan and Chunka. I'm going to go, I'm going to click and I'm going to get on Google and see if they actually, in fact, wrote it. Most people won't take that step, right? Well, I mean, if you build up trust, you're not going to double check everything. Right. And here's something so simple. How could that be wrong? And that's why I think there's, of course, lots of debate, right, about how good or bad these things are. And most people come out saying, hey, you know, that's pretty amazing. But one of the things we all have to keep in mind is that this set of AI tools, unlike other kinds of AI tools, have no notion of semantics or it has no notion of right or wrong. It just has, okay, probabilistically, what if the most not people, but what's the most information point me to as the likely answer to this question? Okay, now, I'm far from being a software expert, very far. But here, from what I've read about this notion of probability and generative AI from AI experts, it's this. Generative AI programs are fed enormous amounts of text, documents, books, and so forth, all of which can be found on the internet. Their large language models are trained to spot patterns in language. For example, what word is likely to come after a certain word? However, what Chunk is pointing to is that the technology doesn't really understand if some text is true or is a bunch of lies. Large language models don't understand the topics they've been asked about and spout off on. One expert who seems to know about this is a Carnegie Mellon professor named Raid Ghani. Check him out online. So, you know, one of one of the impacts of the laws of zero is that some startup can afford to take all of the internet and everything we know and compress it onto into this 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 data set. You know, it cost them a billion dollars or, you know, depending on how you count. 
But 10 years ago, it would have cost them $100 billion. So impossible to do. In five years, you know, it'll cost, I don't know, $10 billion. And in 15 years, you know, it'll cost as much as your Starbucks latte, you know, which is really powerful, but still has no notion of right or wrong or true or false or, or you know, semantic common sense. So some of those problems will be solved. But if you're in a business of thought leadership, nuances matter. And we can talk more about it, but that's one of the things that I've been working on, you know, as a writer is to think about, well, how do I sort of go up the stack and get involved in the interpretation of what I write so that people can go to a large language model and actually be able to get what I want them to get from my work, which is unfortunately not an easy task. So what I hear you saying is how do I use the large language model to, to help me and help my readers understand my ideas, maybe versus others' ideas on the same topics, rather than it be at the total mercy of the large language model and whether I show up on searches I should be showing up or, or questions I should be showing up on and showing up correctly. Well, it's, I wish I could do that, but I can't. You know, it's, there's no equivalent of search engine optimization here. But there is the opportunity for me to say to a reader, and, and I, this is now in the, in the app store, the chat GGP app store, a GPT that essentially is a guide to my, in this case, just one book so that you can ask it questions about my book. And I've structured the content in a way that it can search it or I've instructed it to try to search it in the right way, which is really powerful in two ways. One is I can have some confidence that it will interpret my work as opposed to go and read the article that I wrote Mohan and say that that's me. And the other is that it actually extends my work because it can ask it questions like, hey, how does this book compare to that other book? Now, I don't know if it's getting that other book right, but I'm, I'm more confident that it's getting my book right. But you can also do things that's really interesting too. It's like you can, as a corporate innovation advisor, you can say, okay, how do I relate what this book is saying to my business problem? And hopefully that will be more right than the alternative where essentially it tries to cheat. You ask it about me, it doesn't really, really deeply search into me. It's sort of the equivalent of it browses a few paragraphs and guesses what the, the rest of my answer would be. So tell me what that would look like. Let's say I, I'm reading your interactive book or reading it, what you're doing with it online. And I say, well, I'm not a small business. I'm a Fortune 500 chemical company. How would Chunka's ideas and his co-authors, how would they apply to my business? Will that LLM then say, well, here's Chunka's ideas and here's how they might apply to a Fortune 500 chemical company. Is that how it? Yeah. In some cases, it might be able to do that. I mean, it depends on how much relevance there is, but it, might, it will be able for example, to sort of say, okay, I haven't really read the whole book. So tell me what they say about chemical companies. How might, I think we have to, you know, put the might in there. How might what this book talks about in terms of the future of energy and transportation apply to the chemical industry? And I think it gives you a fairly reasonable answer, not, you know, down to a level, but enough to be thought provoking. In our book, we talk a lot about how to write what we call future histories, sort of visions of particular kinds of business situations in the future, given certain technological assumptions. It can do that because it's an LLM, can sort of take that approach and give you a draft of a future history in your industry, something that we might never have thought about. 
But we did write about things like, you know, how does computing change? How does information change? You know, what are the possibilities of genomics in healthcare? Stuff like that. And it can sort of try to generalize and apply. Now, I would say it's probably a good start. It's not a final answer, but it's a good start to something that we didn't write a chapter on. So it can write sort of that, that section of that, that paragraph apply to you or look at a particular problem from your vantage point. I put a lot of attention into, for example, how my high school teachers use content here to teach certain topics. It's something we never even talked about when we were writing the book, but it's sort of a natural extension. So I think of it as if you were talking to a well-read reference librarian, you walked in and you sort of said, you know, I haven't read this book. You know, what does it have to say about X, Y, Z? And the person actually read the book. They're not me. They're not going to try to represent themselves as me, but they can give you sort of a starting point to answer that question, uh, which is something that the base model would never have done. And I think over time that the same way that when we write a book, you know, we write author guides, we do book club kinds of material, we do audio books, we do videos. I mean, this is sort of a natural extension of the, the next stage of work that you do after you write a book. So do you look at it as a tool in which a thought leader who's published a book or a big research study or a, a big article, white paper, can get into a more interactive, eventually a more interactive discussion with a prospective client who says, well, I, I love the ChatGPT version of this book and it helped me. Maybe it's not as good as being right in front of the authors, but it's better than just reading a book and wondering what they think about this and this. Yeah, absolutely. You know, people have been talking for a very long time about active books, you know, books that are just not sort of words on paper, but how, how can you sort of go into them in, in different modes? I think this is another exciting sort of step in that direction. And it's a way of understanding, drawing out the, the thinking of the authors and the research team in a way that you can't all pile into the book, right? So the way that you approach doing something like this is you start asking yourself all these questions. What's this book really about? You know, all the kind of questions, for example, a great interviewer like you might ask an author. You try to make those explicit and you try to train the model in that larger set of point of views about this work so it can interpret the work in a better way, you know, which I think could be really powerful. Still an unsolved problem, but I think a natural next step for we're crystallizing thinking. And so if the average book author or authors spend X number of hours over a year or two, whatever it is, in developing the material and the drafts for the book, and then try to do what you've done with the large language model or learning model, then how many more hours is that? Is it another X or two X or, you know, how much work is it after I've sent the book to the publisher or I self-published it? Now I got to spend how many hours to do it? You've done? Yes, but it'll be fun, really. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's not trivial and also it's not trivial because you have to you have to structure your book differently. But the worst thing to do and you can do this for free. The worst thing to do is essentially to upload a document and start asking questions about it because I guarantee you if it's your document, you will be very disappointed by the answers to your questions. Somebody else might be fooled, but if you sweated, right, in creating those ideas and you worried about the outline and the structure and the logic and all that kind of stuff, you'll be very disappointed in, in the capabilities today. The consumer may not be as disappointed because they haven't read it. And the answer will seem very articulate. And that's, that's the problem we have here. 
We have the ability to be very articulate, but not the ability to be sure that's the right answer. So is what you're doing to be done after the ideas in a book have been developed and written and, you know, you say, this is it, we're ready to publish, whether digitally or or in print or both, and then we're going to do all this stuff that you've been working on. Is that the, the right order of things or not? No, I, I think what you want to do is you want to capture the thinking. Ideally, you want to capture the thinking. It's I've never had a ghostwriter on any of my books, but I would imagine it's the kind of question a ghostwriter would ask you. Right, to really understand what you're thinking and then decide how to how to do that. You know, even things as as straightforward as, you know, what's your motivation here? What are you trying to get across? Those are the kinds of questions that a good editor or writer will try to tease out of an author. And that's the kind of stuff you want to sort of imbue into a model that explains your book. One of the things I did was I, I created, I went and created a list of 200 questions that people might ask about the book, depending on sort of their roles. And, and then I said, well, can I actually answer that from the content? If I could answer that from the content, where would it be? And if I can't, how do I put that into the model? And a lot of stuff you have to put that in the model. And then, you know, I have the advantage that I started off as a programmer. I worked at the AI lab at MIT. So for those of you who understand these words, I structured the content not as a book, but as a semantic model right? With the linkages between, between concepts and things of that sort, uh, which is what, if you were actually building a knowledge base model, you would do. And we know how to do that, you know, from decades of work in AI, but it's not a PDF. But you have an advantage that the average thought leader, I would argue, doesn't have, which, which is, you know, technology, you know, programming, right? The average thought leader wouldn't know how to write a line of code. Yeah. Well, it's, it's just another tool on our tool bag now as part of the work. And of course, you know, you can hire a programmer. <laughs> it's, it's okay. And we don't all have to do everything. But part of that team of structuring knowledge in a way, in the same way that you would hire an editor, in the same way you would hire a book designer, and all those people are part of the team. We have copywriters. We have marketing people. We, I mean, the team around thought leadership is a lot more than writing. Absolutely. So for your next book, and I don't know if you're planning a, a next book after A Brief History of a Perfect Future, but if you are, are you planning a next book after this one? I'm still trying to shake off the effects of the last one, but yeah, some, <laughs> sometime down the road, there will be. So you're going to, so it sounds to me, you're going to approach the development of that book differently, right? With generative AI as a tool. Would that be fair to say? I don't know if, if, if it's as grandiose as that. I mean, I think the real question is, What's my goal for writing the book and what do I want to write about? And how then does this tool impact that? Now, I, I think that I'll, I'll think about the process in a way that I can capture the kinds of learnings that I just described to you. But the real question for me, and I think the real question for all of your clients and, and the folks watching this is, how does this kind of technology impact the objectives that we have right, as organizations? And I think one of the things that I hope everybody starts thinking about is that we have more and more powerful tools. How does that allow us to solve bigger and, and more important problems? And I think there is both a need and an opportunity for folks in the thought leadership space to think about thought leadership. What is, and what does thought leadership mean in the context of the industries and the problems that we solve? Because I think that we have the opportunity with not just large language models, there are actually other areas of AI that are going to be critically important for society. How does that apply to our business? And how does that allow our business to address bigger and bigger problems, which will 
ripple back in terms of bigger and bigger business opportunities for us. And one of the ways of getting past Gresham's law or dealing with Gresham's law is to actually get that much better, right? Because I think one of the things that large language models will, will do rightly or wrongly is that they'll increase the noise, uh, raise the bar in terms of what, you know, you can get anywhere. So question is, okay, how do we focus on content and the creation of that content in a way so that it's not something you can just get anywhere? I think there's a great opportunity there. And that's the opportunity I'm looking forward to as well. How, how do I sort of connect the work I can do and the way I can do it into the big problems that, are, that faces us and opportunities that face us as in every industry and every part of society? Let's talk about the last thing that we talked about, last topic here, which is about the role of thought leadership in organizations and larger society in which those organizations have to operate. And especially thought leadership topics that are at this intersection that you love, which is competitive advantage for an organization, uh, purpose of organizations, why are they in business, and societal purpose. Say, say more about the role of thought leadership and how that... I, I think thought leadership is synonymous with what are the drivers of innovation in the organization and in, in its client base. So how do you push the natural momentum towards faster, better, cheaper in what you're doing already? to new ideas, new opportunities. You know, when I was um, head of innovation at various firms a long time ago, wasn't marketing was often something that reported to me. I never reported to marketing. Right? Marketing, I think, is a consequence of thought leadership. Thought leadership isn't to serve marketing. And which means that the role of thought leadership is really to explore the boundaries, not how do I package something to sell what I'm selling today, but how do I push the organization? You know, and I always thought of myself as having two markets, the, the external market, which actually usually was more in tune to asking for, OK, what is that big idea? What's that next thing? And the internal market, which sort of said, well, I'm doing what I'm doing. Don't don't bother me. Just go sell what I'm trying to do. Right. So I think, you know, Astro Teller, who's head of the moonshots at Google or Alphabet, has this great line. He sort of says, if I can solve a trillion dollar problem. I'm pretty sure there's a, there's a really large business opportunity there. So first, I'm going to ask, what's the trillion dollar problem I can solve? And I would put that as a question, as a charge, as a motivation for everybody who really wants to be a thought leadership. What's the really big problem in your industry or your markets or your customers that you can solve now? Or, or better yet, you can solve in 10 years because of laws of zero that you could start on today. Because if you don't start on it today, you, your company won't solve it in 10 years or five years or whatever, whatever it takes. You know, whether that is addressing climate change, where we're going to we have to deal with really big problems getting worse and worse or addressing healthcare, you know, where we have this unsustainable system or transportation or education or finance or insurance. There are these big looming opportunities out there that if we get ahead of the game, we'll be ahead of the competition in addressing. And that's the great opportunity for thought leadership. And the reason I think organizational purpose is, is really important is that that sort of sets the North Star at the kinds of problems that you should be looking at. Why is your company really in business? And if you're a professional services company, maybe it's like, what does this industry vertical really have to say about this industry? But, you know, what is that purpose? And then look for that intersection of really big problem and competitive advantage in that space and drive out the big opportunities, and then ask the question, what's the thought leadership content that will bring that to the surface? Fascinated by what you say. I touched on this in my book, and it really should have been the biggest chapter in the book, and it was the smallest chapter because I knew the least about it. 
which was have the model of thought leadership, research and content feeds marketing. We all know that. That game at you know, Accenture and Index and many other firms and Diamond consulting firms, they know that game, right? But it also needs to feed, thought leadership needs to feed service innovation, the delivery of new services and the enhancements of existing services. And what I said in that chapter is, I see too much of, I see a lot of examples of feeding demand creation. I see very few examples of feeding the supply of new and improved services. Yeah. Well, as, as we know, new supply creates new demand. So that you have to serve both. And thought leadership, I think, is paramount to innovation, which is paramount to long-term revenue generation. What do you think are the institutional barriers to that? I mean, if you were, if somebody said, Chunka, we were a $10 billion consulting firm and we do some digital consulting, but, but we really want to leverage thought leadership. And so we're going to give you 2% of revenue to set up a thought leadership research and development function. And you're going to feed content to marketing. And what would you suggest to that company they do to connect you to service innovation, to the development of new consulting services and the improvement of existing ones based on the thoughts that are coming out of your thought leadership R&D engine? I would you know, put it really simply. The job of thought leadership is to take that $10 billion book of business and ask yourself the question of, well, in the normal competitive environment, some percentage of that is going to drift away because of competition, because of price, because of whatever. And that $10 billion current book of business in five years is going to be $6 billion. But in five years, you want to be a $15 billion company. So where are you going to get the $9 billion? And thought leadership is, you know, pointing us at where that nine billion might come from and giving us some credentials to compete for. So in that way, thought leadership is is kind of service innovation, service R and D. It's the R and D for new services. Yes, if you're if you're a service organization, it, it's service innovation. If you're a product organization, it's product innovation. Thought leadership is innovation, and it's long term innovation. It's not about not just about optimizing the existing business. It's about creating the new business. You know, what did Peter Drucker say? There are only two things that are important companies. One is marketing and the other one is innovation. And they're not the same. Know of any best practice companies that are good at using thought leadership, not just to create demand, but also for service innovation? Any any favorites in your mind? Bob, all your clients are, are best practice companies. <laughs> I, I think they have to ask themselves, you know, are they doing what we just described and what you, you know, rightly just described? And where's the power center? The power center is the wrong word. Where's the value system in the organization about thought leadership? And we all know, right? Every organization has some balance between marketing versus innovation. And where does it tilt and how much, you know, how much do you lean one way or the other? And I'm not arguing that either is bad, but what's the portfolio? What's the portfolio allocation and, and is enough? I think about innovation in the context of portfolio management. Innovation is the investment in the, in the options. In the future options. It's about figuring out sort of the range of things that might be new and making sure you have enough small bets in any of them so that you advance the ball in learning about what they are and in developing new ones. That's where the opportunity is in, in all of these firms. Because the natural tendency is to move towards the mean, invest in today. And you have to have leadership that sort of says, yeah, I'm going to invest mostly in today, but I'm going to make sure there's enough in tomorrow. That was one of the many things that Mel Bergstein, your old boss at God bless Mel, many years ago, I thought got right at Diamond, which was knowing that thought leadership needed to to lead to new services, right? Yeah. Mel got that. 
which I think is unusual. He, he got that. You know, I actually worked for Mellow Three Firms at Anderson, right as it was becoming Accenture and at CSC and at Diamond. And he always he always had this beautiful ability to sort of to actually think about it as a portfolio, to balance that and not, and not make a choice, hard choice one way or the other. You know, right before Larry Downs and I wrote Unleashing a Killer App, which was sort of a personal project. I remember standing with him and he had just hired me as the partner at Diamond. I said, he said, oh, yeah, you're going to work at this client, this client, and that client. And I said, you know, Mel, I remember my contract, I have this book I'm writing and my contract says I can keep on writing it. He said, yeah, of course, of course. If it's good, we'll back it all the way. Just don't spend too much time on it. But he didn't say, no way, don't spend any time on it. I mean, I think it's fair to say that investments like that made Diamond to a $3 billion firm, from a small firm into a very large firm and attracted great talent. It's, it's shocking. And the same thing happened at, at Index with Mike and Jim and their books. The other great thing about innovation is that it attracts talent with purpose who, who, are, who are drawn to solving big problems. And that's an option value as well that you're creating inside your firm, which can't be underestimated. Yeah, it's thought leadership as magnet to top tier talent, just top tier talent. Absolutely. Those were great days back then for you at Diamond and for us at uh, Index before your days at Diamond. Yeah, great days. But I think they're just as great today because you know what? The tools are better and the opportunities are clearer. Well, Chuck, thanks so much for your wisdom and your time. And could talk to you all morning and afternoon about this stuff, even just revisiting our old days in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Thank you for having me, Bob. Thanks for everything you're doing. Keep up the good work. Chuck, we will uh, we will bring you back, hopefully uh, later this year, to find out how this LLM book of yours is going. Deal. Chuck Amoy gives all of us in the thought leadership profession something to think about. If people increasingly go to ChatGPT and other generative AI software to find thought leadership content, instead of going to search engines like Google and Bing, and if that software tells them what to think, then every thought leader could be in trouble. Maybe generative AI systems will be the new thought leaders. At the very least, I believe generative AI will raise the bar for quality content, for original insights backed by statistics and stories. When generative AI is able to do its own original thinking and not merely find and rephrase what humans have written, then all thought leaders will be in trouble. Now, that's a scary thought professionally and one I don't hope to see in my lifetime. For Everything Thought Leadership, this is Bob Boudet. Everything Thought Leadership is a video and podcast series from Boudet TLP. It's for thought leaders and thought leadership professionals, the people who help experts get recognized as thought leaders. If you enjoyed this episode, we'd love it if you left a like and if you shared the episode with your colleagues. You can find out more about Boudet Thought Leadership Partners at boudettlp.com.